Welcome to Burning Platforms, a fortnightly podcast from the Australia Institute's Centre for Responsible Technology. I'm Peter Lewis, the Director of the Centre. This week, we're sharing a panel discussion held at NetThing 2022, centred around my colleague Jordan Gow's terrific new book, Disconnect, Why We Get Pushed to Extremes Online and How to Stop It. Joining us in the discussion are Centre for Digital Wellbeing founder Carla Wilshire and Guardian Australia Managing Director Dan Stinton. Before we dive into some of the stories that anchor your analysis, Jordan, maybe just do you want to share the why and the how of Disconnect and critically what sort of conversation you're looking to spark? Yeah, thanks very much, Peter. So Disconnect really came about because um, I started to see an escalation of the online harms um, caused by the current setup of the internet over the last few years. And I think we all have to some degree. Um, but it started to really affect me when um, I started to recognize um, people that I knew. So not, you know, crazies from far away, but people who are like one degree removed from me start to exhibit some of these issues. So for example, falling for, you know, online conspiracies, starting to attend lockdown protests and being anti-vaxxers, you know, starting to be victimized by trolls and screen addicts. So it felt like there was a, a very real escalation in the last, three to five years of that happening. Um, and so I started very tentatively talking to different groups of people about the idea for the book. And even though it wasn't a statistically significant sample of you know, thousands, everyone I spoke to said, yes, I know somebody who's like that. And so for me, it felt like there was a real reason to start to explore this issue very closely. Um, and that's where the genesis of the book really came. Um, and, you know, it, through that process, I was able to interview, you know, lots of different people, dozens and dozens. And it really felt like this is a real mental health crisis that we're stumbling into and that we're not really prepared to address. That's great, mate. So, look, let's let's look at some of the personas. You give us the freedom fighter, the social media narcissist, the hateful troll, the dating app pest, but also a couple that we thought we'd go into a little bit more detail. And let's start with the online conspiracy theorist. And as somebody who has battled his share of online conspiracies, Dan, I thought you could lead this part of the discussion. Thank you, Peter. Uh, yeah, Jordan, congratulations on the book, uh, mate. I was reading it furiously last night and I've got to say, it's a really compelling read. And I think the anecdotal nature of it is actually what makes it compelling because as you said at the start, we all know people that probably fit the personas in this book. And I think your strategies on how to uh, engage with them are, are something we should explore here. But yeah, as Peter mentioned, your, your book opened with uh, the online conspiracy theorist chapter um, after an introduction and a bit of history on the, the QAnon um, sort of curiosity, if you like, or, or conspiracy theory. Now, look, I suspect everyone here knows uh, about this, but but just in case, this is a very strange conspiracy theory. It started about 2016, and it effectively alleges that the world is run by a group of progressive elites, you know, including the Clintons and the Obamas, and they, they run the world for the purposes of, of running an international pedophile ring, amongst other things. And it also alleges that, that Donald Trump is the saviour who essentially rose to power in order to expose this ring and, and bust it wide open. There's many different variations of this, but that's sort of the kernel of it, if you like. Now, it's clearly crazy, um, and crazy ideas have, have been around for a long time. But what was interesting about this is that it, it started on a fringe website, 4chan, 
uh, you know, I saw it with zero moderation and has some pretty vile content, but it then migrated onto Reddit. And then before you know, it was sort of uh, going everywhere on, on Facebook and before they sort of realized it. You also then touch on Jordan, just to, to go into another conspiracy theory, you go on to, to a, another one, which, which kicked off around the start of the pandemic. And that outlines um, effectively that COVID vaccines are, are either ineffective or worse, that there's something that Bill Gates invented in order to insert microchips into the world's populations. Now, what, what I find interesting about both of these phenomena is that the, the crazy ideas have been around for as long as humans could tell stories, right? But they have tended to exist on the fringes and never gained mainstream adoption. And, you know, I guess as someone who has worked in mainstream media uh, for a couple of decades, I can speak from experience that we often receive tip-offs of different conspiracies in, in the newsrooms. Most turn out to be nothing, the vast majority do, but uh, and have no evidence to support them, but a small number actually do turn out to be true, and they and they become you know something that that the mainstream news media covers. What has changed recently, though, obviously, is that the gatekeepers of gatekeepers of information, you know, the mainstream news sites, that that that's basically been busted wide open, and now everyone can be a publisher and put whatever crazy theory you want on social media. And because companies like Facebook reward engagement at all costs, these fringe and crazy crazy ideas are very interesting to people and therefore drive engagement. And so regardless of whether they are true, they get boosted in the newsfeed and they receive widespread adoption and this becomes something which is which is huge. And, you know, millions of people in different parts of the globe can, can start to follow them. So my, my first question for you, Jordan, is, uh, and I guess it's an obvious one, but nonetheless an important one, just touch on how important you think social media has been for the growth of conspiracy theories because they have existed forever, right? Why, why has social media become the fuel that's amplified a lot of these things yeah absolutely and speaking to all the different uh, case studies that i spoke to um, it was very clear to almost all of them that there were two sites in particular um, that was actually really set the um, one quote was put petrol in the fire of their conspiracy theory uh, laden loved ones and um, i do call those platforms out and it's facebook and youtube primarily and I think um, what was interesting um, going through the, the research was, as you mentioned, it all started, QAnon in particular started in 4chan. And, you know, I think most people probably wouldn't have experienced 4chan because it's quite particular. It's got its own sort of vocabulary and etiquette. Um, but then there was a jumping off point when some of those conspiracy theories that were circulating in 4chan started getting posted in Reddit, which is slightly more accessible as a platform. So. Reddit, for anybody who's not familiar, is um, they call themselves the front page of the internet, and it's essentially a, a big um, collection of forums. And so, you know, it went from a hyper niche, hyper fringe sort of environment to a slightly more mainstream environment. So that was jump one jumping off point. But then the real sort of escalation and what was really noticeable um, in terms of the speed, the scale, and the spread of these conspiracies was when it jumped from Reddit to the mainstream platforms like Facebook and YouTube. And, you know, um, whether you're a fan of Reddit or not, um, the platform still had some sort of moderation controls attached to it. So that there's things like downvotes. So if you don't like a particular thing, like a conspiracy theory, you can downvote it until it disappears. There's things like karma scores where your profile has a score um, to sort of tell you whether you're reliable or not. So there was still a degree of control over that environment within Reddit. But as we know, in Facebook and YouTube, there's you know absolutely no moderation whatsoever. And that's when the, the problems really started to hit. 
And on top of that, um, we, we know that algorithmically, um, Facebook and YouTube's algorithms, you know, if it thinks it likes that you like one particular thing, it'll serve you that same buffet style until you're full of it, right? So uh, that, I think that jump from those niche online environments into these really global, you know, billion, um, you know, mil billions of users and audiences, um, platforms like Facebook and YouTube, that was the real sort of um, escalation moment. Uh, yeah, conscious of time, just, just one quick one. So Jordan, one of the things that's great about your book is that you go into both things that the individual can do to combat these kind of phenomena, as well as things that regulators can do in the platforms themselves. I just wouldn't mind starting with this one in particular on individuals, if we could, and just ask you one last question. Mm. So look, I know lots of people, I suspect we all do, as you said at the start, of, of that have fallen down the, the anti-vaxxer rabbit hole in particular um, off the back of the, off the, of the pandemic. And I have just simply been unable to turn people's um, uh, turn around people's minds on this it doesn't seem that matter what what evidence you throw at them uh it, it doesn't help now I, and i also i think get accused of being part of the problem because i run a mainstream media organization uh, in in the country so i'm probably coming to it from uh, a, a pretty distrusted position for a lot of these people but my question is what can individuals do not the ones that are necessarily believing these conspiracy theories but people who are friends and family of them to try and bring mm. them back to reality what, what would you recommend I'm going to cheat a little bit and kind of preface that I, I think when it comes to some of these media topics, the bulk of the responsibility should definitely be on institutions. So the tech platforms should definitely invest in moderation. Government should invest in um, more research to understand this phenomenon and um, invest in rehabilitation techniques. But the reason why um, the recommendations were um, split into two, so what we can do with a societal level but also at an individual level is to make people feel like there's some sort of agency or control over that situation and so um, to answer your question directly there's a few specific techniques that people can try and so one of them is actually uh, debunking and so that's quite a controversial one because as you said you know for people who are really down in this rabbit hole no amount of logic or reason can get through to them, but there's um, slightly different techniques that you could do um, to, or you, that you could try as part of that. And a lot of the recommendations came from a book um, that was written by a guy called Mick West, and he calls himself a professional debunker. So the, the first and most obvious layer is obviously, um, you know, refuting that particular claim. And, and only that would only work if it's simple enough to refute. So it's, you know, like a very specific situation or fact. But the other two techniques that he, he proposes is called spotlighting and floodlighting. And they're both about essentially um, providing so much evidence um, and so much factual information that that person is kind of left with no um, real alternatives or rebuttals. And the reason why that might work for some people and not at all saying that it might work for everybody is that often people who are down these rabbit holes get really quite obsessive. And part of the, the value that they think they have is the specificity of, of their theories. And so if you really want to engage and you're able to refute it at the level that they think they have the expertise on, you know, according to guys like Mick West, so that, that might be one way of getting through to them. But ultimately, um, you know, it's about engaging in good faith and having open communications with them. And, you know, the first recommendation in the book is actually asking, you know, are you up for that? 
and you know do you want to take the time and sustain effort to engage with that person and in most cases it's probably not going to happen um, and so a lot of the case studies in the book the people who are up for it are the ones closest to them so partners husbands wives because it takes that much effort um, you know to even have any kind of uh, traction Carla your um organization the center for digital well-being has a particular interest in the well-being of children i would have thought that the screen addict chapter would have been compelling reading for you what do you take away from that 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 part of the book can i just say first of all absolutely fantastic book i haven't finished it entirely but i started flying through it and it's just beautifully written the chapter that i'm particularly found fascinating obviously was the chapter around addiction but just even some really eloquent phrases and lines you know we're gaming even when we don't realize it you know we are we are now effectively so immersed into gaming and so immersed into technology that you know to some extent a lot of the ways in which we're interacting with technology have changed us to such a fundamental level that we don't even necessarily have that awareness and another quote I pulled out from the book was um, today's internet is basically one big game um, and I think you know Jordan you so articulately captured uh, and particularly by introducing us to the persona of Patrick, a 23-year-old who um, got completely hooked and immersed into Call of Duty. Uh, and, um, and you introduced us to his struggles, which on the one hand, you know, he felt that it was such a fulfilling part of his life. And yet at the other hand, there was this deep sense of sadness that in some senses his immersiveness into the gaming world had cost him so much in terms of his real world life. And it was really only after years that the realization came that, you know, he'd missed time with his mother and it was only after she passed. Um, and so, you know, to some extent, I, I found the reading of the book um, very profound and very evocative. Um, I think, Patrick, you point out that to some extent, in terms of behavioural addictions, we've now moved to the point where uh, gaming has become part of the, the DSM, the clinical management around psychology, and, and to some extent um, has, has been now recognised as something that is in need of treatment. Uh, and you took us through some of those studies, um, the study in terms of um, the finished study around the way in which interaction engagements and multi multiplayer games really is so addictive because just knowing that you're playing against someone else really does amplify that addiction. Um, but also the way in which screen time and gaming really does interrupt the development of your frontal cortex and how that, that ultimately does affect the structures of a brain. And for a generation that's coming, uh, that is spending so much time on screens um, and so much time in gaming, uh, that the realisation that their brain structures are starting to change during their developmental phase will probably be reset for life, to me, is probably one of the most terrifying parts um, of studying this area. Uh, so, you know, congratulations again, but I really wanted to deep dive in and ask you um, if you can tell us, Jordan, just a little bit more about what are the mechanisms that create addiction uh, in terms of gaming? Yeah, um, the gaming chapter is really interesting. So it, it's called, it's sort of um, about screen addiction, essentially. And gaming is um, interesting because it's the first internet or screen-related disorder that's been officially recognised by the World Health Organisation and by the DSM, um, as you mentioned, which is the official um, 
clinical standard for disorders. Um, having said that, the, on, on the entry, if you look at the DSM list, it's called Internet Gaming Disorder, and the only sort of thing attached to it is needs further study. And, and so, you know, going through this chapter, well, what, what it really highlighted was how we're quite dismissive of screen or virtual disorders. Um, and I'll answer your question in a moment, but I just really wanted to um, share this anecdote where one of the psychologists I interviewed in that chapter, he treats gaming disorders for a living. He's one of the few in Australia available to do that. And he attended a conference on addiction. And, um, you know, the kind of addiction that that conference was talking about was, you know, hard drugs like heroin or gambling addiction. So pretty full on. And when he, when he, when he introduced himself and told people what he did, he was kind of laughed at. Um, and, and, and so I think we, we still don't recognize virtual disorders and virtual addictions um, as legitimate, even though, as you mentioned, it, the, the way the internet is currently set up now is one large game. And a, a lot of websites and apps use gamification techniques basically as a core part of their platform environment now. So the, there was a time when gamification was, was kind of cool and people started to integrate those techniques those techniques, but now they're all over the place. So things like intermittent rewards, profile scores, even things like leaderboards, running scores and things like that. So like the features of gamification sort of permeates um, across basically most of the major websites and internet infrastructure that we see. Can I ask a follow-up? I mean, to some extent, it has been an evolution um, to get to the point where we've gotten to uh, around the tools of addiction in terms of gaming and the internet. As we move into Web3 and the metaverse, do you see those tools around addiction as getting worse, stabilising? Yeah, that's a great question. And um, there's, I think, a, a chapter we're going to go on to speak about, which is about the future. So I think what's interesting about those new phases of the web that, being we, that we're being told about, like the metaverse, is that they're not realized yet. And they're essentially end goals that um, some of the biggest tech companies are working towards. Um, but the thing I'll say about that is we clearly haven't um, addressed or resolved some of the current issues we have with this phase of the web. Um, and so you know, I, I don't have a lot of confidence that, that we can build those new phases in a way that's safe and equitable when we're still going through those issues now. Um, and so in, in a lot of ways that it, it might actually get worse in this new environment where, you know, we, we are sort of barely understanding what it looks like and we're only starting to come to terms with what that setup looks like. Yeah, and that, that's actually a good segue into your final persona, which is the naive futurist. And obviously, there are a lot of big targets of very successful naive futurists and also a lot of um, less successful ones floating around. Where do you see the fault lines and the key decision points that are going to be made in the way that the web three if that's what it becomes or blockchain develop like what are the critical inflection points yeah web, web three is really quite challenging again because 
it's an end state that people are working towards that you know isn't quite here yet. But it seems like the philosophy behind it is um, basically an idea that you, we want to abolish the the current governance of the internet, um, and so you know it's underpinned by blockchain technology, with, which is essentially a you know distributed ledger and. Um, one of the case studies for the future chapter is this great um, woman called Michaela, and she is a, a veteran technologist. Um, I think I agree with her position a lot. In, and in her mind, um, the, there's a, a disconnect between the vision for Web3 as this decentralized, um, you know, free from governance kind of world and the people who are building it, which for the most part are still the big tech titans that rule today's technology, right? So you, you, like on the one hand, we're sort of saying we'd be free from those structures, but the, the people who are developing it now are the people who are actually in power. So I, I think there's a big gap there in terms of what that vision it, it looks like and, and how to try and build it. Yeah, one of the things that strikes me is that for any of us that have sort of been schooled in UX and user-centered design theory, where it's drilled into us to think about the user. But in a lot of these debates, it seems to be much more about picking a mark where the technology goes and then trying to retrofit a use for the technology. And I reckon if these guys were starting out, they wouldn't get past first base. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, you know, the, the mantras of, of big tech are starting to come undone as well. Like, so, um, you know, move fast and break things used to be like a, a really popular saying that Facebook um, had popularized. And, like and break democracy. Yeah, exactly. And now we're realizing, actually, you, you, there's probably merit in moving slowly and, and fixing things. So I think it, it, the Web3 idea is just a symptom of that kind of mindset. Um, and and in steroids really and the some of the critics of web3 um, let's take meta for example mm. how they're rebranded from facebook to meta some some of the critics sort of say that they just did that because they want to they're furiously trying to get away from this current version of social media that they've essentially broken and so they're trying to rebrand it to something else and hopefully have a clean slate so Again, you have to kind of look at what those underlying motivations are and who is actually building these, these new technologies. So just stretching out the user-centered design, the other thing that you, you do is you're taught to build personas. And what we've got in your book is a bunch of pretty dysfunctional personas for whom poor design has rendered them a victim. I'm interested, and I know you have policy prescriptions, but can we change these personas to give them a happier story or are we locked into these, you know, the pest, the troll, the narcissist, the fighter, like how do we ship <laughs> this around? Yeah. And I, I recognize that the point, the personas seem overly pessimistic, but <laughs> I think the, the, the point is that we, we shouldn't ignore the harms and that most you know, user personas actually build for a positive state. Um, and, you know, when, when you're going through a software design process, you know, you, you, it's like you have Dan, who's the heavy news consumer, and Carla, who, I don't know, might enjoy entertainment. 
and Peter, who's really into politics, you know, so those use cases are often um, positive. But um, the reason why I called out the, the negative side of it is just to make sure we don't ignore it. And when we're thinking about building for these users is like, who are those users? Are we including enough of the right people? Are we making sure that nobody's left behind? And so, um, you know, you, user experience and, and human-centered design is like a nice general philosophy, but are we including all the humans as, as part of that? And clearly at the moment, we're not because these kind of outliers and these mm. dysfunctions are surfacing. So Dan, I guess you and I could have both at times been accused of being naive futurists. What's the positive flip and the reframe? How do we become people that want to embrace a future, but do it not naively? That's a big question. Um, I'm not sure if I've got the answer to it, but I mean, I think it probably comes back to what Jordan has touched on. I mean, I think a lot of the problem with where this tech has started is not from ill intentions at the beginning. It's just from unintended consequences from these platforms that have emerged as they've gained traction. I mean, startups are very hard, right? They're very hard to do. I've got some experience with this. Um, not great experience either. They haven't necessarily gone very well, but getting them off the ground is often, you know, your your audience's safety is often a lesser consideration as you're trying to just make your business. Then your survive. investors' well-being, yes. <laughs> That's right. And then you know you gain you gain traction, but unfortunately that sets the culture of a lot of these organisations. Then is because they 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 then start having traction and start becoming popular. And and what should have been front of mind at the beginning is not. I mean, I think the lesson that we need to take and perhaps where we can improve the future is just we have to be. There's been this sort of utopian version or, or vision of of what tech can do for society as it goes. And look, technology has done amazing things for society over the last sort of two decades or so in particular. Um, but the downsides are also starting to become very, very obvious. And so I think that just needs to be something which is built into the start of companies um, and the culture of these companies from the very, very beginning. Um, but Jordan, I don't know, what do you think? How can we have a more optimistic uh, take on things? Uh, what, what, how can the, the future be better than, than where we are now? Yeah, well, one of the, one of the key projects that um, Centre for Responsible Technology has been thinking about for a while is you know, the public square project. And I think, you know, it's called slightly different now, but the idea that we build alternative platforms, I think um, the, the I challenge the notion that the way the internet is set up now, and particularly some of the, the bigger digital platforms are the only way we can do it. And so if we invest in alternative platforms that, you know, don't necessarily have a profit incentive or don't necessarily have a design where it's, meant to, you know, where it only cares about you know, engagement and keeping people in their platforms for as long as possible, then we can maybe start to experience an online environment that is a little bit healthier. Um, and it sort of, it started off that way in the early days of, you know, Web.1 and Web 2.0, but what we've seen is now there's only a small handful of companies that dominates most of our online experience. So if we can actually get to that plurality of digital platforms again, we might start to recover what the original intent um, of the internet was, which is this, um, you know, kind of very diverse open experience. So it sounds uh, like a bigger role for, for government then, Jordan. Sorry, last question. A bigger role for government. Well, I was actually going to throw the government thing to Carla and then round it back because I do Got think it. there is yeah. this tension between the individual, the corporations and the government. So Carla, having worked in a lot of policy, where, 
Where does government play? I think where it's getting to, and I think to some extent this is this is very much where the Centre for Responsible Technology has gone and the public square debate, is that we almost need to have a reframe of the notion because because we've seen very much government around cyber rather than in cyber. And I think we need to start having a bit more of a conversation about what is the political philosophy of the internet? What's the, what is the kind of structures within the internet, whether they're government or non-government structures that are going to stabilize um, and create some of those mechanisms around the balance of power um, between individuals and between concentrated power um, so that we can actually start to look at driving the sorts of accountability mechanisms which lead to better platform design. I think part of that is really about sort of the government in the real world, but I think part of it is also how do we create those structures online? That's totally right. I've been um, musing over this around the data hacks while talking about my vasectomy as well. But the the idea <laughs> of pers- oversharing, <laughs> I know, but then I was I was the one that was hacked. In terms of personal identity, I think there is now an acceptance that um, our ID and our intimate details should not be held in 100 different companies. The question is whether we trust government to build a secure wallet for our identity, whether we go down the Berners-Lee 3.0 path and try to set up our own pod and control it, or else we imagine a third space that operates in our in our interests. And I'm I suspect we haven't even got to the landing point or all that, but Jordan, they are the three bits. And I and I often feel that if it's just individual or just government and there is not this broader sense of a civility, um, civic structures, the same way industry super funds look after our finances, then we're not going to find the answer because we don't want the state to have total control, but we can't do it all ourselves. Completely. And it, I think it is trying to find that balance between all the different stakeholders and making sure that everybody's needs are represented um, is probably where we need to get to. And at the moment, um, it is just a little bit more imbalanced in that, you know, I guess only a handful of corporate interests are defining our current experience. So we need to rebalance it again for the more civic side. And obviously now we're seeing a lot of regulations so government starting to get involved again. So maybe you are starting to see that rebalancing happening mm. um, now. I think the other interesting bit, and maybe this is a round last thought for everyone, is that innovation that is done on the venture capital model is going to lead to certain outcomes. So how do you create an environment of civic innovation, which is done with good design principles, talking to the best, in the personas that you've built out there. Dan? Um, Solve the internet for us in 30 seconds. Sure, sure. That's uh, that's an easy task. Look, I think it's two things. I think the, the problem, the big problem that we've seen with the Web 2.0 companies is that they've gotten too big and have too much influence. And therefore, I think there's a perhaps dry but important role for competition policy just to make it easier for alternatives to emerge that perhaps put people's safety at the heart of things, basically. That's that's one um, part of it. Um, the other part of it, I think, is I think there needs to be a, a greater focus on privacy uh, going forward. Um, I think that one of the problems we see with a lot of these companies, a lot of the harms that come from these companies is that people's privacy is compromised, uh, which led to you talking about your vasectomy in the Sydney Morning Herald this week, Peter, and I thank you for that. Um, <laughs> but but um, Always happy to share. 
but but the point is, yeah, well, this is the point, right? Like the point that you were making clearly is, you know, all of this very personal information is now out there on the internet because we don't have sufficient privacy regulation. I think if you look, it's not going to solve the internet clearly, but if you if we can improve the competition between these big companies and have much more smaller companies that have less influence, and we can put people's privacy at the heart of everything we do going forward, I think we'll go some way towards solving the problems. But interested to hear what the others think. Um, no, look, I'm I'm a bit of a structuralist, so I think you know to some extent there's some really good points there around competition policy and the fact that until you change the underlying economy of how the internet works in terms of the attention economy and rebalance that, I think we've got some serious issues in terms of the way in which it's naturally going to drive in one direction, um, and I think how we think about that and how we also create a um, a, a much more nuanced and balanced idea of what the internet could be that we all share in. Excellent. Thank you, everyone that joined <laughs> us for Burning Platforms. Jordan, congratulations again. If people want a, a special discount price of um, Disconnect through our website, www.centerforresponsibletechnology.org.au slash publications. Thanks, guys. And um, yeah, mazel tov, Jordan. Thanks, everyone. You've been listening to Burning Platforms, a fortnightly podcast from the Australia Institute's Centre for Responsible Technology. It was recorded on October 14. If you'd like to attend one of these discussions in real life, you can register at centreforresponsibletechnology.org.au. Burning Platforms was produced on Gadigal land by Jennifer Macy. Talk again in a fortnight.